following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. very intense topic. As you see from this image of Hans Memling's painting of the Last Judgment, people often see this kind of iconography and become filled with fear. That's the wrong attitude. This type of imagery depicts psychological truths about the state of our being, not only our humanity. We see here the famous Last Judgment of Christ looking over humanity with people in turmoil, a conflict in which the souls of the dead must either ascend towards heavenly states of being or be taken down. There are deep teachings about psychological change in this type of art. They reveal to us the necessity of changing who we are, what we are, currently, to become something divine, something sacred. Rather than become fixated on whether or not our humanity will face its end, it is better to examine our moment. What are we now? Who are we? Why are we in this life? What are the decisions that we make at our jobs, with our families, with our careers, with our loved ones? It is very easy to become discouraged when we look at the state of people and the growing psychological pressure that is constricting everyone. Now, it's important that while keeping in mind this growing intensity of suffering, of conflicts, we have to transform it. We have to understand it. We have to do what is right. These events will occur and actually have occurred. But what are we doing now practically 
in ourselves to not only change our state of suffering, but to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. This is a noble mission. It is not easy. It is a painful one. But when we taste states of peace, of liberation, of happiness, we want to give it to others. Even when they are being dragged by their own anger, their depression, their fear, their uncertainty, with their passion, we can help others. And in fact, when we help others, like we see with St. Peter welcoming the souls into heaven, we gain blessings, we gain light, we gain hope. We'll talk about what initiation is. What does it mean to become a member of the higher worlds, superior states of being? What does it mean to understand these truths? How do we do it? How do we know divinity? And likewise, how is this drama playing out within the context of the new age of Aquarius in which we are presently in? Initiation is our own life. Conventionally, it is the action of admitting someone into a secret or obscure society or group, typically with a ritual, like the Freemasons. I'm sure some of us may have seen caricatures of perhaps the Freemasons like in The Simpsons, the Stonecutters. Some people often make a joke of these types of Profound rituals, which are symbols of how the soul becomes divine. How we perfect ourselves. It is the action of beginning something. From the Latin initiare, to originate, to initiate. From initium, a beginning. It's not merely just the culmination of some type of ritual process like quinceaneras, Bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, coming of age, no matter the culture. They are about becoming a new person. A fundamentally new individual. Not like anything we were before. Obviously with adolescence, we've all entered the process of becoming an adult. We've been initiated into adulthood. Regardless if we're of a religion or we are secular. Instead, this initiation that we speak of, as in this image of a divine lady knighting a master, is about the soul. How the soul perfects itself and is perfected by God, by the divine, whom we call the being. That being is your inner spirit, your inner reality the fundamental depth of what we are. That which is eternal. But initiation is obviously difficult. Being a teenager is difficult. Growing up is difficult. Becoming even more mature in life 
Adapting to hardship is difficult. The same process applies to the maturity of the soul. This is why there are very few candidates, or better said, there are many candidates, but few masters. But it can be done if we want to begin a new way of life. If we want to see suffering, it can be done. But we have to work. Initiation obviously has the, uh, levels of process. There are different types of initiations. We have, according to Salman Vior in his writings, initiations of light and initiations of the darkness. Symbols of the white and black lodges we've talked about extensively. There are beings who wish to become divine. And there are beings who wish to enter suffering and to bring people down. The choice is ours. What do we do moment by moment? What decisions do we make? What behaviors do we enforce? Are they for the benefit of others or for our own will? Is it consciousness, the soul, or is it desire? Initiation is what leads to revelation. When we begin these types of practices, such as the runes, mantra exercises, the study of the meditative path of serenity, we suddenly begin to see things. We experience what religion talks about in its symbols, in its stories, in its allegories. We read scripture and it makes sense because we've lived it. It is not a theory. It is what we know. It is real faith. Revelation is a surprisingly and previously unknown fact, especially one that is made known in a dramatic way. It is the divine or supernatural disclosure to humans of something relating to human existence or the world. We see here Moses receiving the Decalogue, which is a symbol of how any soul that climbs the mountain of initiation, like we see with the three mountain poster, to go up spiritually, not physically, symbolically, inside, to receive directly from our inner God what we need to do in our life, what we need to live, what we need to be. Those commandments are not a mere code of strict adherence or blind dogma. It is instead the law of conscience. We can articulate these laws in physical codes, and they have a certain credence and necessity in society. But more importantly, when your conscience tells you that something is right or wrong, it is a law. If you break that law, if we transgress our own heart, we suffer the consequences. We have regret. Sometimes revelation comes after the fact. It comes with pain. Sometimes it comes as foresight through mystical experiences, like in dreams with the tree of life. 
in meditation. These revelations are always symbolic. They are a language of, of divinity, of abstract principles, philosophies. We interpret them based on our daily life. Your visions will always coincide with the facts, with what is going on in your existence, because initiation is life. It is not some distant, foregone, abstract place in the future. It is now. It is our state of mind. This is why it says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, how these symbols inspire us and require a type of intelligence, a new skill to understand. He that is wise will hear, and it will increase learning, and the intelligent will gain one's counsels to understand a parable and its interpretation, the words of the wise and their mysterious sayings. When we have these experiences, they are shocking. They are very alarming. They turn our world upside down, especially in the beginning. Because we see that our previous ways of thinking, ways of being, were wrong. We may realize that who we were and what we did, how we lived, was really uh, destructive. Many people who don't even study spirituality realize this, such as when we're kids, we grow up, we do things, and then we realize how wrong it was. How mistaken. But in the nature of spiritual phenomena, it is even more drastic because we personally witness within dreams or in meditation the state of humanity. How particular states of mind or desires are really the greatest obstacle we face. We create the pain of our life. And so, experiencing that for the first time is an apocalypse. It's a life-changing moment. The word apocalypsis means revelation. And obviously the connotation has to do with the end of the world. And while people often debate and argue and discuss the physical nature of apocalypse, the state of humanity, people don't realize that real apocalypse or apocalyptic experience applies to our personal life. And the way to interpret not only the symbols of religion and scripture is through um, looking at our moment-to-moment -moment life, our experience, our states of mind. Obviously, there's a book called Revelations, which is very deep, symbolic, Kabbalistic, written in the abstract language of Hebrew mysticism, like we see with the Tree of Life, but also the study of the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil. And those are symbols of, again, like we've discussed before, Kabbalah and alchemy. Alchemy is when we take the energy of life and use it to transform our mind. We direct energy willingly with the soul to revolutionize our perception. Because the power of creativity, of sexuality, the power to give life. When we take that power, 
we purify it, we conserve it, we elevate it up within our body, our mind, our states. We see things. We witness. The term witness in, or witnesses in Latin is testes. So where we get the term testimony. When you take the power of the stones of whether the ovaries or testicles, you're working with the energies of life. You're breathing the energies of the air and elevating that force up your spine into the kundalini. You will start to see things in dreams or when you're meditating. And in this way, when you have that type of perception, you can start to make sense of the book of Revelations. Because that book is very dense. You read it literally, it doesn't make any sense. But spiritually, it does. And has a very practical purpose for our, our work. Unquestionably, says Salman Vior in the Gnostic Bible, the Pisces Sophia Unveiled, the Apocalypse, Revelations, is a book of, the book of wisdom, which is comprehensible only by the alchemists. Only the workers of the great work can comprehend the Apocalypse. The secret science of the Apocalypse is found in the superior chemistry, which is alchemy. The laws of the superior chemistry are alchemy. The principles, the order of the magisterium and the fire are found placed in the Apocalypse. So, Allah, chemia, Arabic and Greek words, to fuse oneself chemically with God. We've talked about the perfect matrimony, how married couples, men and women, can take the fire of sex and become mages, enter the magisterium, the priesthood of the divine through the sacred fire. That fire gives you light if we temper it, if we master it. And in this way, we start to understand our life. The Gospel of Thomas emphasizes these points. That an initiation is our own life. It is what we do. Some people look to the future or to scripture, to religion, to tell them about the world that is to come, the new age, the future humanity, which some of you are called the karate. But that type of anticipation is actually impractical if we're not working on our mind, if we're not taking the time to observe our life and to make the connections between our dreams and our states physically. As we're practicing with dream yoga, astral travel, we're working with the creative energies of our transmutations, pranayama, sacred sexuality. We start to see images and symbols and parables. When we connect them to certain moments in our day, we get insight. We say, aha, I know what behaviors in my mind, in my states that I must change, that I must meditate on that I must comprehend. So hopefully we can eliminate it and be free. Free of anger and its problems. Free of fear and its debilitating <coughs> situations or states. 
freedom from the mind. Here's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Thomas. His students said to him, When will the kingdom come? Yeshua said, It will not come because you are watching for it. No one will announce, Look, here it is, or look, there it is. The Father's kingdom is spread out upon the earth, and people do not see it. Again, people look to physical reality as the future kingdom that will arrive. But nobody knows when, precisely, that humanity will face a type of conclusion. But more importantly, people are looking exteriorly for things that should be internal. You look for the end, but you don't even look for the beginning. The kingdom is spread out upon the world. It is our life. It is what we do moment by moment. But we tend not to see it. We often go through our day and perhaps we don't think much about our circumstances at work or what we face. But when we take this work seriously, our jobs, our career, our marriage, our friendships, every interaction becomes the opportunity of initiation. But we have to see it. Again, when will the end arrive? Again, it's emphasizing the same points. In verse 51, His students said to him, When will the dead rest? When will the new world come? He said to them, What you look for has come, but you do not know it. Many times in life, when we least expect it, if we're paying attention, if we're meditating, if we're observing, suddenly you feel a pressure, an intuition, a hunch, an understanding. You feel more awake. You begin to see that every thought, word, and deed has an impact on the world in our immediate spaces. What we look for in terms of religious studies is to have a direct connection with our being, with divinity. It'll come to us when we least expect it and when we're not with the mind anticipating wanting experiences. Because that's a very common thing, especially in Gnosis. We read what Samuel Vier wrote in his books about many supreme ecstasies, mystical states, heavenly realities. And so we naturally feel the longing to know that. So when we may be thinking in the future, I will have this experience if I practice this mantra or this meditation. But those types of attitudes are mistaken. Because your God comes to you now, here, in your present moment. What you look for has come. It is your conscience, your heart, which knows the truth. In the new world, well, there is a new humanity that will take this planet in the sense of, uh, as with any history, uh, historic uh, process of different civilizations, they have their rise and their fall. It's normal. More importantly, the new world we seek is our life. How do we make our life new? Novel, spontaneous, but also profound. But obviously, according to many of the prophets and teachers of different religious um, movements, 
or the scriptures themselves emphasize that humanity is really not interested in spirituality because unfortunately many spiritual individuals have made a bad example of their traditions and we always have to be careful too whenever we approach or practice really any meditative science that we really live the principles and not merely speak them require we have to be humble now we find in the gospel of thomas that the master jesus or yeshua in hebrew meaning savior talks a lot about why it is people are fascinated with the world and not really looking internally into the causes of suffering he uses the language of intoxication being drunk on the world obviously alcohol can intoxicate and make one sick or create problems more importantly our desires our attachments our fears our pride our ambitions make us drunk make us weak Yeshua said, I took my stand in the midst of the world and I appeared to them in flesh. I found them all drunk, yet none of them thirsty. My soul ached for the human children because they are blind in their hearts and do not see. They came into the world empty and seek to depart from the world empty. But now they are drunk. When they shake off their wine, they will repent. Now, people who are thirsty obviously approach any tradition. Someone has a longing to know the meaning of their existence, not merely some macrocosmic grand cosmological scale of like why the universe is, is what it is. But more importantly, why are we here in our terms of our daily moments? Obviously, blindness is not physical in this sense. It is spiritual. We don't see that how our own actions create the karma of the world, the affliction of humanity. People came into the world empty and seek to depart empty. Going back to some of the early verses too, we talked about, he who knows all but lacks within is utterly lacking. To be poor in spirit in the negative sense, to not have development. But when we shake off our attachments to the world, perhaps we will repent. Again, this language, repentance, often does have a negative connotation, especially in the West, where we think of repentance as some cloistered virtue, where by belonging to a tradition and accepting their codes and mores, their belief somehow we will be saved. A real liberation is a state of being. It's not a belief. And repentance really occurs when we understand why we made others suffer. And so we seek to repair all of that. Also, when we think about this teaching, especially in terms of initiation and the nature of revelation, we find that real spirituality really provokes a lot of conflict. Not intentionally, in the sense like some people get really excited, they study a religion and then they approach other people, hey, you should study this, you should follow what this teacher said, what this book says this scripture and approaching it in the wrong way with a lot of fanaticism or 
maybe even fear or ambition. Those qualities don't help anyone, especially the people who are propagating them. When we talk about conflict and initiation, the truth is that if we're changing our level of being, if we're working to transform our egotism into something superior, we face necessary problems. Problems are a doorway to initiation. In fact, that is the very nature of it. Divinity gives us challenges so that we can grow, so that we can become better. If we didn't understand or confront our own weaknesses, we will never change. We'll be stuck in a bubble thinking that we are always good and never growing. But also those challenges can come in many ways. We call them ordeals. Sometimes they occur in our marriage. Sometimes they occur in our work, our family, our friends. For a lot of us, it's all the above. But the truth is that these are necessary and important to face and not to run away from or not to fear because they are the entrance and the fundamentals of our candidacy. Yeshua said, people may think I've come to impose peace upon the world. They do not know that I have come to impose conflicts upon the earth, fire, sword, war. For there will be five in a house. There will be three against two and two against three, father against son and son against father, and they will stand alone. A lot of people read this and think about if I study this type of doctrine or teaching or apply it, then suddenly I'm going to have problems with my family or I'm going to have conflicts and fights, disagreements with my neighbors. And it can happen, obviously. But more importantly, this house is psychological. It's us. We are a divided house. If you really think about it, in one moment we may be happy, we had a cup of coffee, we're normal, we're stable, we're in a good mood. Suddenly, we're driving and then someone cuts us off. We get angry. We get road rage. The next moment, we become scared because we forgot something. Followed by the appetite, I need to get some food. We are constantly fluctuating as people. There's no uniformity in our psychology. If we look at it, if we see it, on a basic intellectual analysis, we can deduce that truth. But to observe the fact is very different. When you are actively looking at yourself to see how we are a divided house. The only way to restore peace in our psychological home is to observe and to comprehend. We have to understand these conflicts. We also have to understand that our inner Christ is the originator of that process. So Christ here, obviously he was a person who existed. More importantly, as a symbol, he is part, represents our inner divinity who gives us those challenges and determines, and our, basically our actions determine, whether we are greeted with laurels or flowers on the right, greeted with peace and serenity, as we see here with the symbol of his hand up in the form of the pentagram, as we see in the back of the wall. 
You have the middle finger, index finger, and thumb extended to the pinky and the ring finger down. It's a symbol of the perfect human being made into the image of divinity. It's a greeting of the Gnostics. Also, we find it in many paintings of Jesus. Or if we make poor choices and follow our whims, we face the sword. And that sword, according to the Sufis, the mystics of Islam, is the sword of remembrance. The remembrance of divinity. Meaning, if we act virtuously, we are defended. We defend ourselves in life with a virtuous state of mind. If we are impure, we fall on our own sword and we face the consequences. So we have to decide. Conflicts are necessary to be very spiritual because otherwise we don't change. And also, when we talk about the nature of revelation, realization, and the apocalypse, there's a sense of, or connotations of immortality. A lot of religions talk about the immortality of the soul. The soul is immortal. Is eternal. But the truth is that that immortality must be developed and earned through the process of initiation. Because our anger and our pride, our animal desires, are not eternal. They're not sacred. They're of the earth. But virtues like compassion, kindness, altruism, conscious faith, these are real. They are the reality of us. But unfortunately, much of our psychology is dampened by these negative states. And so that is the process in which we clean that up so that we can witness higher states and make that our state of being, moment by moment. So people, again, look to mystical experiences, maybe a dream or a vision, which are very beautiful and necessary. But more importantly, we access that when we are changing day by day and no longer looking for the samadhi, the spiritual experience. I know a lot of us in the West are very attached to having experiences. But the truth is that sometimes even divinity can withhold those types of experiences because we may get proud or, according to the Buddhists, get drunk on nirvana. So more importantly, it's better if we be humble and work to change the things in our daily life. So there's some enigmatic, enigmatic statements here. Yeshua said, the heavens and the earth will roll up in your presence and you will live from the living one. And you who live from the living one will not see death. Doesn't Yeshua say this? Whoever has found oneself of that person, the world is not worthy. So the heavens and the earth will roll up in your presence. Meaning, you will gain insight when we put our mind aside. Put away all attachment. When we are present, here and now, all the time, if we develop that, then those experiences will naturally unfold. And you who live from the living one, when we are awake with our inner being, will not taste death. So some people obviously talk about physical death and believe that 
In the coming age, they will resurrect physically by belief. These are archetypes. To be alive is to be mindful when you see life in a new way. Instant by instant. Not anticipating, not rejecting, not fearing. That death is psychological, is spiritual. And we could talk a lot about perhaps what happens to the soul after we die. And we do have courses and things we talk about, such as in dream yoga and astral travel. More importantly, it's important to learn to overcome perhaps death in our life, the sufferings of life, the negativities of life. Because if we find ourselves here and now, we are in possession of our soul. And he says here that of that, the person of that person, the world is not worthy. But obviously people don't know or are interested in these things. But obviously we can perhaps lead by example. We concluded this image because the Gospel of Thomas talks about alchemy, the nature of love, the perfect matrimony. Obviously, with alchemy, we have greater force, greater fire, greater power to awaken consciousness. But obviously, single people can work with the creative energy in themselves in order to gain access to higher realities and truths. What's important to remember is that we begin where we're at. We have different te teachings and practices that you can use if you're um, married or single. It doesn't matter. There are a couple of truths that I like to unpack here in relation to the nature of alchemy, the nature of the duality of the couple, but also the nature of synthesis in relation to initiations and ordeals. Yeshua said, this heaven, this heaven will pass away and the one above it will pass away. The dead are not alive and the living will not die. During the days when you ate what is dead, you made it alive. When you are in the light, what will you do? On the day when you were one, you became two. But when you became two, what will you do? So the Gospel of Thomas is very enigmatic. And we can break this down in terms of Kabbalah and alchemy. The heaven, this heaven will pass away and the one above it will pass away. Mystical experiences come and go. They're not permanent. So when we strive in initiation and the path of spirituality, we should not be attached to experiences. It's good to have them but they don't indicate progress. In fact, we can have experiences in which we are being told internally that we're doing very bad by our own divinity. We get that revelation, you need to change this because you're fumbling in your process. Instead, we have to take advantage of every circumstance, change what we can here and now. The dead are not alive and the living will not die. Who are those dead? Really, we are dead spiritually if we're not remembering the presence of our inner divinity moment by moment. We have to constantly spark our attention moment by moment. 
be alive, to see alert novelty. The doctrine of gnosis, the doctrine of the moment, to know who we are in this instant. Therefore, the living will not die. Meaning, we will not lose that state if we are diligent. During the days when you ate what is dead, you made it alive. Obviously, we're in the basic level, we're talking about food. Eating physical elements to give us life. More importantly, we have to take situations in life that would make us dead and make it alive. Make it something new. We call that transformation or a transformation of impressions. We receive the impressions of life. We are taking them in willingly. We're understanding our perceptions and we're transforming our reactions. That's something we practice with meditation very deeply. When you are in the light, what will you do? Meaning if we're really remembering our inner God, we have to be watchful. What will we do? Will we forget? And of course, it's very difficult to remember but we have to be diligent. On the day when you were one, you became two. It refers to alchemy as well. Um, some of this teaching uh, applies to the ancient humanity known as Lemuria, such as in the, we talk about in theosophy, especially root races. We know that from the past, our past humanity, that both sexes were one. There was both male, female, hermaphrodite. And this hermaphrodite split into separate sexes through the development of a type of evolution in the past. There is that significance there. As stated in the book of Genesis, Jehovah Elohim created man in his image. Male, female, he created them. And therefore, after the division of sexes, it was necessary to have sexual cooperation in order to develop the real power of the soul. So both polarities are needed. So we became two. We have men and women. But when you became two, what will you do? When man and woman unite, they become an Elohim, as we said, a God, masculine, feminine, that is the synthesis of the Holy Spirit, the creative power of the divine. And that really is the essence of initiation, especially in terms of what Samalavir wrote. Because when we work in a matrimony, there is the fire of creative power to really perfect the soul. It is very deep. But the question becomes, well, we became two. Obviously, what will we do? Now that we know the science. Now, when we're working with the alchemical teachings, when we talk about Revelation, we talk about this image, the Kabbalah, to talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, alchemy, and the tree of life, the levels of being. We see here the top trinity, which in Hebrew is Keter, Chokmah, Binah, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit in Christianity, the crown, wisdom, and intelligence of the divine. Real revelation occurs when 
we work with the power of divinity, the creative energy. Again, whether we're single or married. And to synthesize the nature of alchemy, obviously husband and wife can work together in order to conserve that creative force and elevate it through sacred sounds, mantras, prayers. And those prayers in remembering the presence of divinity and connected with love, with inspiration, with joy. And through pronouncing those mantras themselves, we create a higher level of being, a new way of being. We initiate and create spiritual life because that power which could create a physical child is now being directed to create spiritually, internally. Yeshua said, whoever drinks from my mouth will become like me. I myself should become that person and the hidden things will be revealed to that one. So, when we think about the tree of life, we can relate it to the human being. The top trinity relates to the head. The middle trinity relates to the heart. The lower trinity relates to our sexuality. And the bottom sphere, Malkut, relates to our feet, our physical experience. The sphere of Da'at in Hebrew, meaning knowledge, is precisely that mysterious science that was not taught openly amongst the Kabbalists of Israel. But here we teach it openly. Da'at, that sacred knowledge, that wisdom or experiential knowledge of the divine, is precisely located in the throat. And this is why we emphasize in our teachings that mantras or sacred sounds help to awaken our spiritual potential, awaken who we really are. This is what is meant by this scripture, whoever drinks from my mouth will become like me. Obviously, in our daily life, we learn to use our speech in the right way. And part of initiation is, whether we're at work or with family members, friends, we learn to use our speech consciously. We don't say words that are incoherent or disruptive or create discord because speech is a sexual power. We know from teenagers that with adolescence, by reaching puberty, the voice changes. There's a sexual relationship to how the energy manifests and develops the vocal cords, whether in men or women. And more importantly, when we are practicing with alchemy, that energy transformed through prayer and mantra, awakens our inner Christ. Who, whoever speaks like me, he says, will become like me. And coupled with the power of a matrimony, we can become divine through the fires of love, spiritually speaking. And in that way, we awaken the intelligence of our mind, or better said, the superior mind. We gain wisdom and we are crowned through what is called initiation. So we talk in, especially in the perfect matrimony, that by working with that energy and raising up the spine through the power of what is known as Kundalini or the Holy Spirit, Shekinah in Hebrew, we become crowned. We achieve the halo of the saints. When the mind is illuminated with that energy, that force, 
that potential. This is how we gain real revelations. When that energy is rising, that fire is illuminating the mind. The mind could be like a cave, symbolically speaking. You have dreams of going into a cave. It's like going into the subconsciousness of your own psyche in order to see what's there. And with light, we see. With fire, we have light. By transforming the fire of a marriage, we gain authentic revelations, initiations. Here we have an image of, I believe, Daniel in the lion's den. So as we're taking the energies of life and we are exploring our mind to understand our own weaknesses and how to change them, we discover in the cave, we're surrounded by many animals. In the story of Daniel, he was thrown in the lion's den as a trial and an ordeal. In terms of initiation too, in our daily lives, many times we have to face the lion, metaphorically speaking, psychologically speaking. We have situations in which if we react with fear or with anger or with pride, we, are, we will be devoured. And so the solution for Daniel was his serenity, his peace, his remembrance of the divine, of God. Those lions also represent our own anger, our pride, our fear, our lust, our defects. We call them egos. Ego is a conglomeration, the Latin word meaning I or self, which really is a multiplicity, as I was hinting at earlier in terms of our psychological house. You can call it a house, you can call it a cave, where in the darkness dwell our faults our defects. We have to learn to explore and understand these animal elements in us because they take the energy of life and steal it from us, steal it from the soul. So we have to take that power or to use the astrological symbol of Leo, the grandiosity of the really the power of Christ. We have to explore the depths and to take light out of the darkness. Yeshua said, blessings on the lion if the human eats it, making the lion human. Foul is the human if a lion eats it, making the lion human. So this is really the essence of initiation itself. As we're working with energy, we're exploring our mind. We see our defects. When we understand each separate ego in itself, like anger or pride or lust, a sense of self, we can consume it in meditation, meaning we meditate, we reflect on that error, we observe it and visualize it in our mind, we seek to comprehend it. When we comprehend it, we have a transformation in our mind. We consume spiritual sustenance. Each ego is a shell that traps light. It's the genie that, it's the, the a lamp that captures the genie that Aladdin frees. That genie is the soul. When you liberate the soul from each cage, you gain power, spiritually speaking. You gain wisdom. And therefore, blessed is the lion if a human eats it, 
making the lion human. You take that power of Christ, really, in your inner divinity, which is inverted through these elements, like ego defects. We make it human, divine. But if the lion eats a human, that really is the greatest tragedy. Meaning if our own defects take us over, if we give in our, to our anger and fear and pride, we will enter what religions have really called suffering in religious language. Salvation occurs when the ego is dead, when anger is eliminated, when lust ceases, when pride is nullified. But obviously damnation is the opposite. When we suffer and make others suffer. Here we have an image of Jesus being kissed by Judas before his passion. So the Gnostics really talk a lot about the nature of initiation in terms of sexual language. Because obviously initiation is deeply related to how we use that energy. And Judas obviously is a very controversial figure. Unbeknownst to many people, all the apostles in the ancient times were masters. They came to represent a cosmic drama with their physical life. And so Judas actually had the greatest responsibility to play the role of the ego. He did not want it. He wanted to take the role of Peter, which is the role of faith. But Jesus of Nazareth commanded him, you have to play this drama and turn me into the authorities. He did it even though he didn't want to do it. And so Judas, obviously, as a person 2,000 years ago, is one thing. But our inner Judas is the real issue. Our inner Judas wears the robes of a priest, of an authority, of an apostle. This type of ego loves God, loves religion, loves scripture, but loves lust more. And we all have that within, especially if any, we're attracted to any type of spiritual study. And so there are many types of defects. I mean, obviously, we call mystical lust one of the greatest, one of the most difficult. And we see that this passion or this drama is something that, in terms of initiation, we have to live. This is a symbol. How we are betrayed in life, perhaps, better said by our own ego, our own mind, is the greatest drama that we will ever face. Sometimes that plays out in situations in life. Maybe we have a conflict with a friend or family member. It could play out in many ways. But more importantly, that situational pressure is something that provokes our psychology, our defects, so that these egos, when you least expect it, emerge and you see your faults and you have the choice do you endure it and endure your or you go through your passion you suffer patiently through that discomfort and learn to study yourself eliminate those faults or are we betrayed or do we give in really betrayal is psychological when we give in to the mind. 
Yeshua said, shame on the flesh that depends on the soul. Shame on the soul that depends on the flesh. So really, any defect like lust or anger or pride takes the energies of the soul and squanders it, wastes it, abuses it. And so the flesh that depends on the soul, the potential of our spirit, is really negative. But also, shame on the soul that depends on the flesh. That refers to when our consciousness gives in to the ego, our defects. Because again, it's a, mo- it's a moment-by-moment decision. We have to learn to first pay attention, be mindful in the moment, and suddenly you start to see this conflict. You see this division, you see this struggle where you're trying to be compassionate and virtuous in certain circumstances, but you see your defects try to take over. And it's not pleasant. It's not easy. But with patience, with endurance, with meditation and comprehension, we gain wisdom. We learn how to respond to any challenge in life. So the soul that depends on the flesh, depends on the ego, obviously is negative too. We seek to change that. And this ties into our study of the necessity of ordeals. Ordeals are necessary, as I said. Temptation is fire. Triumph over temptation is light. That temptation is obviously where we have the decision to make. How do we act? Yeshua said, I've thrown fire upon the world, and look, I am watching till it blazes. Ordeals occur in in terms of the four elements. Earth, air, fire, water. Ordeals of fire relate to criticism, condemnation, betrayal, slander, where someone is criticizing us and we feel the temperature rising. We feel anger emerge. We feel heat psychologically. The solution in that circumstance is to be serene, kind, and sweet, patient, loving, conscious love. Ordeals of water relate to adaptability. In life, we may feel like we're drowning. We're swimming against the current. We're struggling. We try to keep our head afloat. But by learning to patiently swim against the tide, the current of life which mounts us to be egotistical and angry or fearful, we reach the shore. With ordeals of earth, it's like mountains are collapsing on oneself. There's no stability. There's earthquakes. Your foundations are being uprooted. You don't know where to step next. If we are patient, humble, and wait, the mountains will lift. And then we won't have this crushing feeling or suffocated state where we feel powerless in life. Likewise with the ordeal of air. You feel like you're floating up above a chasm. You're going into an abyss. Metaphorically speaking. But also, even in dreams, you can have these experiences. They play out in symbols relating to the elements. And the ordeals of the elements test us to see how we think relating to the air. 
how will we feel relating to the heart, fire. How we will act relating to our will, to water. And then the earth, our daily life, how we will subsist. All these ordeals come from divinity. And there are people who feel afraid, especially when they approach this type of topic, because suddenly as they're practicing this kind of science, they start to have challenges in life. Ordeals emerge. Obstacles. And then they feel, I'm suffering so much. This is very difficult. This teaching is hurting me. The reality is that it's working. We need the ordeals. We need fire, air, water, earth. Challenges. So that as you're studying yourself, you gain knowledge and wisdom so that you can extinguish the fires, calm the hurricane, stabilize the earth, and calm the waters. These elements are psychological, but also they represent circumstances that we can face in our work. But in the end, if we are patient and act appropriately, we will gain victory. So the beginning of initiation has to do with, again, moment by moment, beginning our state of mind, observing ourselves. We talk a lot about self-observation, paying attention. And some people often, when they approach uh, these kind of studies too, often try to think of the end. You know, sometimes we have certain challenges that we just hope will come to their conclusion because they're very difficult. But the way to get to the end is through the beginning. There's alert novelty. Again, looking for the new, gaining data, seeing life with freshness, with clarity. The student said to Yeshua, tell us how our end will be. Yeshua said, have you discovered the beginning and are now seeking the end? Where the beginning is, the end will be. Blessings on you who stand at the beginning. You will know the end and not taste death. So it's good to think about the end goal of this type of practice. Obviously, it's freedom from suffering. But the way to get through it is by examining the moment. Where the beginning is, the end will be. Blessings on you who stand at the beginning. And again, beginning is initiation. In this way, we will know the end, progress little by little with patience, so that we escape suffering, overcome it. So this image, I believe, is included in some Orthodox uh, Christian murals. It's a ladder to heaven. And again, like a lot of religious iconography, it can be very intimidating. We see the saints ascending up the ladder of being to the heights. And that there are many demonic figures who are pulling people from the path. Those demons are our mind. Of course, it's difficult to face. It's challenging. That ladder is the vertical path of being, as we've talked about in our introductory lectures. So we have two lines the line of life, which is horizontal, and the line of being, which is vertical. On the horizontal line, we have our birth, our life, 
our marriage, our old age, our death. The vertical path is our state of being here and now. Do we choose a superior way in the, in the moment or do we descend? It's not easy when we are angry or filled with intense desire. And there are no guarantees, obviously, unless we remember God. Yeshua said, whoever is near me is near fire, and whoever is far from me is far from the kingdom. I know people in many traditions seek comfort and perhaps consolation that things get easier in the spiritual path. The reality is that it doesn't. It gets worse. But the important thing is to have a sense of humor because you look at the life of Jesus and what he suffered in initiation, there really is no comparison. I mean, every prophet has faced that intense trial and difficulty. And uh, as you approach towards the end, it says, really, that's the greatest danger. When you get to the very point where you are about to enter, say, using the Kabbalah, the Absolute, which is above the Tree of Life, where you will reach the goal. There is no greater danger than that moment. To be or not to be. But obviously we're here, so we got a ways to go. But with patience we possess our souls. This is why someone Vior said, the danger of being a demon is never so close as when one is very close to being an angel. And you can have that experience where if you are in the astral world in your dreams, your divinity can show you the path. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. Internally, it is very difficult. But what gets us through the end is the love for our inner divine being, our God. Love is what pushes you beyond the highest gate. So if you're using a Gnostic language, we talk about the ascent of Sophia up the path of the tree of life in order to reach the goal. And what carries the soul all the way to the very end is love. To the point that we are willing to face our own death, our own greatest suffering, our own greatest weaknesses, to reach rest. It can be done. And you may have that dream where if you're entering the path, they show you level by level what you will face. You can do it. If we really have faith in our own Divine Mother. So we have some resources that you can study. Obviously, we covered a lot of topics relating to initiation. I was trying to synthesize quite a bit. In terms of the alchemical teachings relating to sacred sexuality, we have a book called The Narrow Way. It's called The Global Crisis and the Sexual Solution. How a marriage, that energy, that work can perfect the soul. We also have the Echorian Message, which is an explanation of the, uh, the Gnostic scripture or Book of Revelations, the language of Kabbalah and alchemy. And lastly, we have the Revolution of Beelzebub, which talks about initiation itself, the different kinds of initiation, different realities like the higher worlds, but also, more importantly, the ethical requisites of self-transformation.
So you have questions, I invite you to ask. Well, I will say this, uh, not so much a question, but just an observation. You were saying that the further you go along, actually the more difficult things get. And that's right. a challenge for me because I'm like, okay, I am moving forward. I'm learning more. I'm making more progress. I keep expecting things to get easier. Right. And uh, it just, it keeps getting harder and more difficult. And, and that's been a, it's been a stumbling block for me because, you know, I, I get depressed. I get angry when I'm like, man, why isn't things getting, why aren't things getting more easier? So, um, yeah, it is what it is. And I'm, I'm having to accept that. Uh, but I know it's been holding me back. That having that, that, that type of thinking. The reality is that when the challenges get stronger, it's because we're stronger. We have more capacity to overcome the challenges. Paul of Tarsus stated that divinity never gives us any challenge that is greater than we can handle. But obviously, there's always that threshold that we reach. And divinity as a good psychological trainer gives us the challenge and sees that we succeed, says, okay, You've reached one initiation. Now here's a harder one. And then again and again, that challenge, that progress. But the, the thing is like any person who goes to the gym and exercises a muscle or their, their body gains greater strength and can take on more. It's necessary because we're trying to exercise the powers of becoming a god. So if we wish to become like that, we have to be willing to face the hardship. And we get stronger along the way. And obviously, we get compensated for it in terms of victories and celebrations, in terms of the higher worlds. Like, um, if you overcome initiations in uh, life, we gain experiences where the different masters come to you in the astral plane and celebrate with you. And they encourage you. And they give you a lot of faith. They often appear in the form of children in the astral when they welcome you into their chambers. Salman Vera talks about this very extensively. And when they talk to you, you really see our potential because we get inspired. We gain hope. Yeah, it's not easy. But when you see the end goal, truly, we will strive for it. But yeah, that's why um, we need to be encouraged along the way too. And your inner God will do that and gives us inspiration when we need it. And that's why if we feel like we're in a dark night of the soul, we have to meditate. Look within and examine your heart and pray, show me what I need to know to be inspired to move forward. And suddenly the insight will come. You're not thinking about it. You're concentrated. You're waiting. Sometimes it'll fold in the nature of inexperience. But we have to we have to be patient. May patience possess ye your souls. I remember too. Um, yeah, I mean, in periods of my work, I've had many ups and downs, and with time and practice, things stabilize. Obviously, to a point. 
And once we gain that stability, suddenly we get tested to see whether or not, are you really sure about your footing? And we have to be grateful for that. It's very welcoming to know like, okay, when they test us, it's because they know we can we can accomplish it, right? It just um, takes um, persistence because if we fail the ordeal, we try again and until we get it, until we succeed. Sure. Are these ordeals personalized to us because of our unique like karma and past actions, or are they just? generally the same for everyone what's the same is the principle the types of experiences like with fire it's ordeals relating to criticism or water relating to adapting in life these are applicable to everybody but how that plays out in our life is going to be individual how i play out the karma my karma from my past existences in terms of fire it's going to be very different from everyone else we all have our own personal path. The path is individual, but it is also universal. It's individual to us in terms of how that drama plays out. You know, the life that Jesus led was obviously very unique to him. What he went through was very extreme because he physically lived it with his life. That was a particular karma he had to face. But he was willing to do it because he was trying to represent a psychological truth that applies to everybody. By his example, doesn't mean that we're going to be persecuted on the streets or be physically crucified. Instead, it's a symbol how we have to face that type of hardship and pain and be willing to have faith in God. It's particular because that drama is unique, but there are things that every person does have to face in terms of principle. Is it correct to say that part of the particularity is that our own psyche is going to respond in a unique way and that's what we really have to work on? You know, if someone criticizes me, I have a different reaction than if someone criticizes you. So during that ordeal, I have to face the demon within me that wants to take a wrong action in that situation and learn what is the right action and try to master that. Right. You know, obviously our ego is going to be unique to us and how we react to situations. Obviously, how you react will be different from how I react. Some of, some, some of us may not react to the same situation in the same way. What we, one person would find offensive may not be offensive to me, right? So that's how I, it's unique. But the fact that we can be offended is universal. And obviously we have that uh, propensity to a great degree. So we got to look at the weaknesses and Holding them out. But yeah. I'm going to follow up on that when you said not being offended. So is, is like a simplified goal not to be offended? It's a noble aspiration. We wake up in the morning and say, I am not going to be angry today. Well. As you get tested. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I will be, I will be, Charitable and kind. And then suddenly that day you'll have 15 homeless people come to you and say, could you please feed me? That's how it works. I mean, we can ask for it, 
we can have the noble aspiration, but the reality and the question is, are we going to do it? Now, the thing to remember, too, is that we don't have to go looking for trouble. In the sense, like, some people hear about ordeals and like, oh, we should willingly go out for them. The reality is that your inner being will manage that. It's like a good trainer at the gym will tell you, you know, okay, yeah, you're kind of struggling with this. Let's take a break. Let's try this for now, right? There's um, the one who manages our karma is our inner God. So have faith in that. Have faith in that your being knows how to manage your circumstances. Because really, you know, as the Quran teaches in the Muslim tradition, if God be with us, or I believe that's actually Paul of Tarsus, but the Quran mentions many times that um, truly we are closer to you than your jugular vein. We are always with you. And we give you ordeals to see that you will strive in the path to show your faith. If there were no potential for mistakes, we could not be victorious. There's that necessity, necessary duality in existence. But yeah, um, we can try to be, say, I will not be angry, but yeah. What counts is our actions. But the, having the, faith, the aspiration in the morning is good. Here is one thing I will work on today. You can set that as a practical goal for yourself before you even begin going to work or, or going to your responsibilities. You can meditate, reflect, or even at the end of your day too, imagine a circumstance where you, you struggled or you felt like you failed. Imagine it, concentrate on it, and pray to your inner divinity, show me how I should act in that situation. And then when the day comes, suddenly you're in that situation again. Perhaps you're working with a client, they're saying something really nasty and negative, and you feel the fire boiling in you, you're about to react, and then you realize, I know what to do. And then with calm, compassion, firm, serenity and insight suddenly we say the right thing in the right way at the right time to the right person and that dissipates it it's like you pay karma and that's a real blessing we pay karma from our mistakes by being a good person and not out of theory but you know when really we demonstrate the most virtuous caliber when we know we could really act in the worst way possible in the situation and yet we don't. You may restrain the thoughts and reactions, but we actually respond with love. Salman Bayar mentions in Revolution of the Dialectic that we have to learn to kiss the whip of our executioner. doesn't mean that we become necessarily a pushover in the sense like if something needs to be done in a situation we can establish boundaries but it's a psychological attitude someone is whipping us psychologically is giving us a lot of grief we have to learn to transform it and we respond with love and understanding we pay the debt in a sense we make the situation less worse maybe that person will go away Maybe we won't have that problem anymore. It's happened many times in my life where I had certain people who I had conflicts with, butting heads with day after day, uh, particularly in my job. 
And I realized by being patient with them and being kind and being forgiving and kissing the whip of the executioner. In the beginning, obviously, for the first, I remember for the first four months, I probably, I was grinding my teeth. It was very difficult. It was very painful. But gradually, little by little, by acting consistently kind and compassionate and helping the person in their genuine need, suddenly, by karma, those people were taken out of my life. They no longer were part of my work. It's like the situation changes. And that's the magic of initiation. You face that trial. You face it patiently. You understand it. You act right, ethically. Then the chess pieces move. The game might end. Maybe the player is no longer there. Peace. And that gives you a lot of faith. Like, okay, divinity is really managing this. And therefore I can be at peace. I am always protected. We are always protected by the divine. And that's how the magic of really this path unfolds. Can I add on that? The question is the goal not to be offended. And in my experience, it seems that the goal is to be awake because in a given situation, what I might need to do is maybe stand up, stand up for someone else who's being abused or mistreated. But in other cases, the goal is to hold my tongue and find peace and serenity and not be offended. And only by being awake can we know what is the virtuous action in that context. Because if we are awake, we can receive the intuition and the guidance of divinity to know what we should do. And also, because some people are more mild-mannered, what might be their, their uh, challenge might be to develop a little more strength or assertiveness. Or other people who are too aggressive, maybe they need to learn how to develop um, mildness and peace in those types of situations relative to criticism and the element of fire. I think just being awake is really what we're trying to do because we can't anticipate in advance what will be the correct action. If we already have in our mind an idea of this is what I have to do in every situation, then we will not see what that situation will actually demand because each situation is new and unique. Yeah, and obviously, again, going back to prior point, initiation is our life. And as you were saying, we can't anticipate what we will do. Comes to my mind the example of Salman Vior. He was arrested for writing The Perfect Matrimony in the 50s. He was, the Catholic Church had him arrested for uh, writing this book, as well as The Revolution of Beelzebub, and for healing the sick. In jail he wondered how he would respond to the prosecution and the judges. And they told him internally, don't plan what you will say. And also, there's a biblical injunction too, I believe, uh, I don't remember what part of the New Testament, but take no thought of what you will say when they take you to the jailers and when they prosecute you, when you face the ordeals. When you are awake, you will know what to do. If you are asleep, if we're not at the wheel of our car, you can get into an accident. 
So if we fail the ordeal, then obviously try again. Sometimes the, the ordeal will occur in other parts in our life or will the same kind of circumstances will appear. But it'll be the same challenge. And it's very dynamic. Like knowing how to act right is very difficult because the mind always tries to predict intellectually. If I do A, then I'll get B. If I do C, I'll get D. But the reality is that consciousness and the being is very is a spectrum, is a incredible range of how to be. And you can't limit that. It's dynamic. You can't put the ocean in a bottle, according to Rumi. That power is universal and expansive. You have to enter it, not the other way around. I've learned years ago, I used to pray not to be angry, pray not to do my shortcomings and all that other stuff. And I realized I, I had a program that I went to, uh, a poster program, and it, it taught me to become entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character, which is anger. And then once I was became entirely ready to have it removed, I humbly asked him to remove my shortcomings, which is the example of what my anger did, what, it, what my anger accomplished in my shortcoming. So I had my, I, I, uh, I asked him to remove my shortcomings and now I don't have to pray anymore to get rid of my anger because I, I just don't get angry anymore. Yeah. But, and I mean, God, God is the one who, who, I can't remove my anger. So there's a prayer, there's a prayer, at the end of the prayer it says, of the power, the love, and the way of life, may I do their will always. And that's what I strive to do. I don't strive to get rid of my anger or my other character defects. I try to do my higher power's will. And it's, it's different every day. Comprehension is in levels. Yeah. You know, it's good in the beginning to get stability where certain situations that provoked us are no longer there. We can gain clarity in terms of a spectrum of perception. There are levels of being. Deep down, even if we are calm here, when the water in the jar has settled, you can start to see the layers and strata of dust, dirt, pebbles, everything kind of calms. You see with greater understanding. And divinity helps us to get that peace, especially if we're practicing mindfulness, self-observation, and meditation. But deep down, we've only scratched the surface because really... There are depths to the psyche that we are not aware of, unfortunately, because if you look at the example of the tree of life, we have the inverted spheres known as the klipot. Or in Islam, they call it the tree of zakum, the infernal tree, which is the inverted spheres of the tree of life. It's basically the hell realms. And those hell realms, which are nine, cannot be accessed physically. They are psychological. So we can scratch the surface. Like, if, you know, physically, to have that serenity is essential. We need that. But there are layers. There are deep roots to this tree, which we don't often see. But we can glimpse if we have a nightmare. We have a nightmare, we are really seeing the depths of hell. Really the roots of our greatest perdition that we have to change. 
Physically, we may be a saint. But deep down, in dreams, really, a monster. Salman Vyar said that there are many saints who attain perfection in the physical world. But in their dreams, they fail the ordeals. Physically, they may be accomplishing great feats. But, such as they're not lustful. They don't commit adultery. And yet in their dreams, another story. And that caused great pain for them. There's even many paintings of like the temptation of St. Anthony, for example. Where you see perhaps many demons are pulling at his hair and his head. Giving him great affliction. Because he's trying to patiently endure and understand each defect at their root. Right? There are roots. And with meditation, we can get at them. So that by annihilating the root, we no longer have any potential to commit wrong. But it is true that divinity is the one that ultimately annihilates these defects because when we work with sexual alchemy, we are awakening the fire of the Divine Mother. And that fire has the destructive potential to eliminate a defect that we've created through wrong action. But we have to do work as part of that process. We have to see the defect. We have to understand it. We have to, as you said, prepare ourselves and allow for divinity to annihilate that defect. If we still hold on to it, consciously or unconsciously, we are feeding it. We are giving it energy and it cannot be removed. But at the end, the Divine Mother is the one that can remove that from us. We can't do it without that fire of Kundalini. So, what I'm thinking about, um, we are trying to eliminate defects. Um, let's say someone is very angry person. He has reactions or whatsoever. Deep down, he's not like that. He's just opposite. It's possible, right? It's our ego, our physical expression. Um, and, uh, and vice versa. There are saints or high masters who may be thinking negative things too, as possibly. It's possible, but um, What's the purpose here? We are working on a character. It can take several thousands incarnations. Yeah, so honestly speaking, many people do not complete the path in just one lifetime. That's been rare. Padmasambhava, Buddha, Jesus, Salman Vayor did it in one life. That amount of intense work is very difficult to manage. Uh, and the point of it, of eliminating defects, is to develop that perfect ethical character. The perfect expression of the divine. Divinity cannot express in us if we are filled with pride, or anger, or ego. Now, some people who have the will and the ordination from God, from divinity, from the being, the command, may be pushed to do it in one life. But oftentimes, that is accompanied by 
prior work. Some beings like Salman Viora, for example, he was already awake when he was a child. He already had past work done in his previous existences. So he took up the work very quickly and easily and got it done. But it was very hard. You know, that intensity of attention, of fame, of notoriety, criticism, challenges, ordeals, psychologically and socially. You know, some beings can do it. Some people can't. But for many people, it takes lifetimes. And again, the one who manages that karma is our being. So what's the final goal of the Bodhisattva path? What do we want to attain? Eliminate all the ego, pay all our karma, go to the absolute. And absolute is unconscious. For Yeah, so I know the, uh, Bovatsky mentioned that, or even someone Vera mentioned, when you are meditating and you have an experience where you're approaching the void, the absolute, which is the eternal abstract cosmic space. It's basically like a great ocean, dark but light. It's darkness, but there is a luminosity there. It's very difficult to put in words. We see that there is consciousness there, but not optimal. Or better said, it's not fully perfected because the absolute as this universal seity, it's the consciousness of all things, is still acquiring more and more. Being limitless, it has more knowledge to gain. So is constantly creating. And that the universe has come into being because through every universe that is gestated from the womb of the abstract space, there are souls that return to their origin and the absolute gains more wisdom in the end. So it's a con, like really, it's the, according to Bovatsky, the Absolute is the eternal breath profoundly unknowable to itself. Because it is, really divinity is unknowable in the fundamental depths. We can know to our degree. And Gurdjieff mentions that in terms of realization, there are six. He calls them the, he relates it in the book called Tales of, of Beelzebub to his grandson. Six degrees of a wisdom symbolized by horns of light, like on Moses. And, yeah, I mean, really, it's a, it's very difficult to grasp at, like, how it is that there are levels of wisdom. But it does explain why it is that there are levels of masters, like, yeah, Buddha, Jesus especially. We know Jesus is uh, really the highest master we know of in terms of a uh, hierarchy. I know Muhammad especially is a master of the straight path, very high. And especially being Nasser Christian, we talk a lot about Jesus and Abramento, but Muhammad and many others are attain, attain those heights. We know from what Salman Vyaro wrote that Jesus of Nazareth is a Paramatha Satya, which is a Sanskrit term for one with absolute knowledge of everything that exists. He uh, attained the sixth highest degree amongst the initiates, which we call Ankhalad, relating to the Egyptian Ankh cross the power of life. And if you meet someone like Jesus internally in the astral, he is incomprehensible even to gods. He has knowledge of many infinites. Literally, you think of a galaxy or millions of galaxies that composes an infinite. He has knowledge of many infinites. And his astral body reflects 
exactly as described in the Revolution of Beelzebub. The stars and sounds and mystical lights of the infinite, the firmament. Crown of three points, cape of the Paramartha Satyas. He can appear that way to you. And it's very accurate what Salonvir wrote. And what's really remarkable about a being like that is that, you know, they come down to us. The greatest will be your servant. Very humble, not a fleck of uh, pride. Sure. You mentioned uh, the three points on Jesus' crown. Yeah. Is, can you go more into that? Symbolizes the top trinity of the tree of life. Keter, Hukmah, Binah. It's also the power of the trident. Three points that the spear that Neptune wields, or Poseidon. That spear is also, or the trident, is also a symbol of the creative power of sex. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that power that is in the waters of Poseidon is the power of creation. And the crown, when Jesus appears in that way, he is showing you that he's mastered that trident all the way to his head. He's really from the Ain, which is the the nothingness, the limitless, the bosom of the uncreated. And going back to the topic of initiatic degrees, you know, when we talk about six levels of objective uh, knowledge, sometimes we call it objective reasoning. Not reasoning in the intellectual type, but spiritual knowledge. Like, you know, we have a light bulb that can reflect more light depending on its capacities. So the highest degree, we said, is unclad. And those initiations are measured symbolically by the horns of light. So I know we think in especially modern er our modern era of horns as being demonic, a symbol of, of demons. The horns of demons symbolically come from the forehead because they are the horns of uh, the intellect, the animal mind. But the horns of light that you saw Michelangelo carve with the statue of Moses the horns of light he had when he came down from Sinai were from the crown. So the crown is the chakra sahasrara, which you see in the image of the Divine Mother with the chakra poster. So that crown of light comes from the supreme crown of Keter in Hebrew. So if you take the tree of life and relate it to the chakras, Keter is related to the chakra sahasrara, which is the power or potential to know everything. So the chakras relate to different centers of the body, but also spiritually. It, it gives you capacities like in dreams, certain abilities. There are vortices of energy that awaken when the creative fire of the kundalini rises up the spine so that those flowers open. And then you gain abilities. So the crown, the horns of light relate to, again, the crown of the saints. To be crowned initiatically is a, a symbol of that. So would that really also to uh, maybe like Allah from the ox and the bull? Yes. Like why the bull is sacred. And, um, yes. The, yeah, the bull is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the earth. The power of divinity enters our physical body. And we know that the sacred bull amongst the Egyptians, the bull Apis, is the, really in Hebrew, to go back to Kabbalah, Binah. And Binah has a duality. 
So it's the third sphere, Binah meaning intelligence. There's also a masculine and feminine element to Binah, male-female. We use the term Jehovah Elohim in Hebrew to reference that part of the Bible. So when the Old Testament refers to sacred names of divinity, it's referring to the tree of life. So Binah, the intelligence of God, Jehovah Elohim, created man in his image. Male-female, he made them. And when male-female divide, but also combine together, especially within a marriage, you have Da'at. And through that light and knowledge is how you develop the horns of light. It's the levels of reasoning or levels of spiritual knowledge. So according to Gurdjieff, he says that amongst the hierarchies of the initiates, you can measure their power or their knowledge by how many tridents they have on their horns. It's a symbol. Symbol of Neptune, the power of having mastered the waters. He doesn't give terms for the first two degrees. You know, if they have two, two tridents, or first trident is one degree. Two tridents, two, up to six. The highest being Anklad. And, um, yeah, very rare to achieve. Even the one below that, the fifth degree, Potkulad, according to Gurdjieff. And these terms are actual phenomena. They're related to language in the internal worlds. So, spiritual language. Some people think of Gurdjieff have made these words up to you know, convey esoteric knowledge, but actually the terms are real. They refer, internally, they refer to these phenomena as with this language of light. Yeah, the final questions, sure. Uh, so comprehension, um, in my personal experience, uh, there's been habits that I've found I will like continue to cave into even though I, I can see that it creates suffering and pain. And so would, would my like final comprehension of it be when I actually allow virtuous action to take place instead of going into that like negative habitual pattern? Yeah. Comprehension is like when you understand something, you don't have to debate about it. I mean, intellectually, like wondering, what did I do wrong? What are the results? What am I doing? The intellect really, you know, can label phenomena. Like, obviously, people in a conventional sense, we say, yeah, we, we may know we have anger or pride or we have certain qualities. But the comprehension is when it really hits your heart. It hits you in such a way that you understand where the anger came from. Maybe a trauma it's related to. What happened in your childhood that provoked it or created it. What past life it came from. You don't have to think about it. You just know. It can happen in a meditation too where you're praying and saying, show me, my God, the root of this anger or this pride. And suddenly you have a vision. You don't anticipate it. In the screen of your imagination, you see maybe when you were a kid and we got bullied where the anger came up. And then maybe even linked to another ego, maybe fear, fear of not belonging. And you can really go even deeper into other past lives where you're shown sequentially like what happened. And then suddenly you just, you know. And then when you have that type of alert, novel understanding, you cut the root. You pray to your divine mother, end this ego. I don't want to have it in me anymore. And then in the end, 
when the situation repeats relating to that defect, you don't even have to think. It's you just virtuously, like you said, spontaneously react or respond in the right way. And then the karma related to that conflict or that social that relationship or social circumstance, it's over. No more. Comprehension obviously happens in degrees. But the characteristic is something like you, you really breathe fresh air. It's a state where what was once perhaps very confused or uncertain or complicated hits you like lightning. And even in the moment of understanding it, your Divine Mother can kill it. She can't annihilate any ego that we haven't understood because part of our soul is trapped in the anger and the pride and the fear and the lust. And if she were to take that defect and throw it into the infernal worlds to be destroyed, part of our soul would be trapped. So we have to understand first, comprehend it, and then the shell breaks or she eliminates it when we comprehend it. Because that's really the work of initiation is the beginning. We all think about what will the end be like? Like what will it be like when I go to the absolute? Because we all want to we all want to go to heaven. Understandably, we feel that pain. But Jesus was saying in the scripture, he who stands at the beginning will know the end. When you're constantly beginning yourself, revitalizing your understanding, looking at yourself and looking at your faults and removing those faults, that's initiation. That's how you change. And that's how you get inspired when life really gives you lemons, right? According to the old adage. I think even Salman Vieira used a reference in the book, The Three Mountains, which talks about the whole path, that when entering the second mountain, which is the mountain of resurrection, which is when you have to eliminate all the ego, he says one has to have the, like I think the taste of a lemon, characteristics of a lemon, meaning you have to be very dissatisfied with life as it is, to um, the bitterness of it, to be so inspired to be, let's get this done. Even if it's... It's so interesting. And that's character, the saints, and that you have to act so um, it's joyful true. to humanity. Yeah, I mean, literally, we learn from the experiences of the masters, the authentic initiates, because when you look at the lives of these prophets and bodhisattvas, you see that really they, it's possible for us. Probably my favorite story has to be the revolution of Beelzebub. When Salman Vior explained how he helped this prince of demons become a master of the light. So Beelzebub was a good one. Yeah. So... Among Christianity, Beelzebub was known as the Prince of Demons. 13th black degree of the Black Lodge. Very monstrous figure. Somehow I described him internally as like a giant gorilla with a big cape, black cape, monstrous tail. And he was like the size of a lamppost. I mean, he really, really was very uh, down in the depths. But in that book... Salman Vera explains how with compassion, with love, 
he taught him and helped him rise. And you think about even the, the especially when you know, think about Samael Vior, I mean, we're talking about the being, Samael, the archangel. So there's the physical person, Samael Vior, who was the Bodhisattva, the human soul, the person, the terrestrial person who worked to incarnate his inner Christ, which is known as in the Zohar as the angel of Mars, angel of spiritual warfare. He was known as Ares among the Greeks, Mars amongst the Romans. And before that tradition degenerated, people paid homage to the spiritual strength of divinity. You know, it's a spiritual battle. You know, we need help. And the name Samael means the potion or perfume or even poison of God. Poison to the ego, but perfume to the soul. He is, uh, his name begins with the Hebrew letter Samek, which is like a circle on a robe rose, a dragon or serpent swallowing its own tail. He is, in that term, uh, Samek means support. He raises the fallen, meaning not just the master, who achieved the work, but the angel who is working with humanity now, internally in the astral plane. Literally, um, in the Zohar, the scripture defines how the universe came into being. And all the Hebrew letters, because they all represent principles and truths, came to present themselves before yod the divine, with Christ. And Samak said, I wish to begin creation through me, through my letter, Samak. And Jehovah or Yod said, I will not have you work or create, initiate the universe because I need you to still raise the fallen. Because the serpent, which is in most people the tale of demons, the power of sex, with inverted, can rise up to become Kundalini, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the duality of the Kundalini or serpent, which above raises us to initiations of the White Lodge. Downward, Initiations of the Black Lodge, meaning um, that group or congregation of beings who are defined in developing the ego. And obviously it has its spiritual connotations. But Samek, when it rises up, becomes a serpent of brass that healed the Israelites. But when fallen, is the fiery serpents that bit the Israelites when they betrayed their covenant. So Samael is the dual power. If he's used in the wrong way, because that energy is in all beings. The power of uh, sexuality, which relates to Scorpio, astrologically. That power, when used in the wrong way, becomes the tale of demons. But when we take the power of Scorpio, sexuality, the serpent that can sting, and raise it up the spine, to the head, to Aries, we become initiates. Aries and Scorpio are ruled by Mars, by Samael. He's the angel that helps alchemists in this day and age to take that power and go up. He can take even the, that energy in us, really. We have, there's Samael the angel, but then we all have our own inner Samael because he represents, well, well, some people have referred to that power as demonic because in us, Samael is evil, is the blind god. If we're lustful and passionate and filled with desire, then that energy is charged in the wrong way. And so our inner Samael is very black in the sense of ego internally. Now, when you purify that energy, 
it becomes really the power of the saints. And that's how you develop the horns of light. Raises the Aries, your head, what? from Scorpion. What raises a head? Scorpio, even Sex. Like we see in the astrology poster. Yeah. Scorpio relating to the sexual organs. Yeah, um, you were talking about um, fire, earth, air, and water. And that's all astrology. Astrology is very, very important. Yeah. In our tradition, we go even deeper than charts. Yeah. There's a way to meditate, fall asleep, astral project. Tell your being, take me to the temple of Libra. Take me to the house of Leo. Those constellations are governed by divinity, angels. And real astral theurgy, astrology, the logos of the stars, the power of divinity in the heavens, occurs when we are speaking face to face with the masters of those temples. And literally, you can travel in the astral plane to the temple of Mars, the heart temple, where the being Samael officiates. In those temples, you get help. They give you inspiration. And some of these astrological figures or beings have different qualities that help us. So obviously, I'm talking a lot about Samael and Mars. If you need help spiritually with strength, invoke him. Pray in the name of Christ, by the power of Christ, for the majesty of Christ. Samael and Vior. Fall asleep and meditate. Pray for help. And then internally, he will come to you and will help you with, give you the strength you need for the ordeals. And Samael, really, if you invoke him anytime, or really, he'll teach you. This is part of the beauty of Guru Yoga, or the real master of Shaik, the real teacher in the astral plane. You can meet masters physically, but it's better if internally, you meet them. No intermediary between you and divinity. Just they come down. They're there. And they will show you things that are very more objective than you can get physically. Because in the astral world or the dream world, the divine or abstract takes on concrete form. And they'll teach you through symbols what you need to know. You can have conversations with masters internally, but usually the language, the way they, they speak is very different from just common common language. They talk in Kabbalah, like they talk abstractly. So those masters will really give you a lot of knowledge. And Guru Yoga is, you know, you find a teacher. And obviously we all have our faiths and religions and, you know, people we work with. For me, is Salman Vior. He's been teaching me internally for a long time. And I rely on him because I have seen him personally and he, what he's been teaching is, is accurate toward my knowledge. So it gives faith. Sure. Yeah. So, okay, uh, I'm thinking just from all the responses, to summarize that I've heard, uh, the concept of willingly suffering is uh, being able to examine your uh, personality defects or negative characteristics 
but also be humble enough to know that it's your inner being that's going to remove it. No matter how much effort you put, you have to surrender to that fact. But as you go through tremendous suffering, is this is this the well. If you if you hold on to that defect, if you keep, let's say there's some goal you want to attain, and the ordeal is that something blocks you and you can't t- obtain that goal, right? Mm. If you hold on to that desire, you will continue to suffer. So the obstacle that has come to block you from your desire, that you, what you want. You see it initially as an ordeal. This is so painful. Why can't I just get this thing that I want or I think I need? But really what that obstacle is showing you, that obstacle comes from divinity. You know, Ganesh can remove obstacles and bring obstacles. You see in Hindu pantheon. So what that ordeal actually is meant for is to show you what in you is a wrong desire. And as long as you hold on to that desire and you say, no, I'm just going to keep fighting. I'm just going to keep going to try to get what I want. Well, then you continue to suffer more and more. And we say you're failing the ordeal. But to see, to use that obstacle to reflect at yourself, what in me is, is suffering right now? What in me is desiring something from the flesh, from the world, rather than just accepting what divinity has brought me? When you see that in yourself, if you if you have comprehension, you see what is wrong about it. So that's why we say comprehension is spontaneous. It's not something you can force. You can you can kind of intellectually try to analyze, but then the comprehension is just an understanding of, okay, now I understand why that's wrong. Before I thought it was right. That's why I was desiring it. That's why I was pushing for it. But now my mindset has suddenly changed. I've had the revelation of what this truly is. And how when I saw it before, I was looking at it incorrectly. I was looking at it through a false self, an ego, a view of how this was going to be a good thing. And then when you let, when you let go of that, that's when divinity, that fire, mm-hmm. which we say you cultivate through conserving and transforming your sexual energy, that is what that potency can come and destroy the defect. And then if you were in the same situation, you'd no longer desire that thing that you wanted so badly because it's been eliminated from your internal psychology. Is there more you want to add on that? Just that this work is achieved through conscious works and voluntary sufferings. The voluntariness of suffering means in life we will have to face pain regardless. But how do we do it? Do we enter the the fray willingly or do we let life take us? Shakespeare said, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is noble in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. Voluntary suffering means face the hardship, intentionally knowing that we have a choice to make. And by making the right choices and comprehending our faults, eliminating them, our life improves. Okay. Any other thoughts? Well, thank you all for coming. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, 
transcriptions, and articles available at chicagonosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.